Well, hi, everybody. This is Josh Warden on the Beaver Tales podcast. This is a bonus episode. Normally, every single episode I have is an interview with an Oregon State athlete, typically former athletes to talk about where they are now in life and their highlights from OSU or maybe the occasional current player like Kevin Abel. But for the most part, it's a where are they now conversation about what people did at Oregon State and what they learned afterwards and how their time in Corvallis impacted them. Well, today I'm taking a different perspective, not talking directly with an Oregon State athlete, but with a guy who wrote a book about an Oregon State athlete. That's Bob Welch. Now, he wrote the book on Dick Fosbury. Got to interview Dick over uh, a long period of time, about a year-long process, writing a book called The Wizard of Foz about Oregon State legendary track and field athlete Dick Fosbury. Now, Bob Welch is a tremendous writer. He's written over 20 books. He's written for the Register Guard down in Eugene. He is from Corvallis, but is a U of O alum. He's the first duck alum I've had on this podcast. Don't tell anybody. But the subject of today's conversation isn't about Bob Welch's career. It's about Dick Fosbury, the guy he wrote the book on. Now, you may know the basics of Dick Fosbury's story. He revolutionized the high jump by creating a whole new method to jump over the bar called the Fosbury flop, and he won a gold medal in the 1968 Olympics. Now, every high jumper, for the most part, uses the Fosbury flop to this day. But really, there's so much more to that story of what was happening away from Dick's athletic career, stuff in his athletic journey, and how the two intersected. That's where Bob Welch comes in to tell that story. His book, The Wizard of Foz, came out two years ago. That was on the 50-year anniversary of Dick Fosbury's gold medal jump in Mexico City. By the way, you can find Bob Welch at his website, bobwelch.net. And you can purchase the book there. It's a great read. I've finished about 22 books so far this year. And of all the ones I've read, The Wizard of Foz is among my favorites, if not the number one book I've read this year. So I'd highly recommend it. And it was great to talk with Bob further about the story. Bob's a great interview. He's an award-winning columnist. Even The Wizard of Foz book was chosen by the Track and Field Writers of America as its 2019 book of the year. And even though Bob is the first U of O alum I've had in this podcast, I know, but he wrote about an Oregon State legend, and he's from Corvallis, and he grew up rooting for the Beavers, so he's good. In fact, OSU legend Bill Enyart nicknamed Bob Welch as the only compassionate duck quote unquote. And Dick Fosbury himself joked that the book was the first time that a duck and a beaver had collaborated on anything other than a real good fist fight. <laughs> so to learn more about this book, The Wizard of Foz, and to reminisce about one of the most captivating stories related to an Oregon State athlete you'll ever hear, please enjoy this conversation with Bob Welch. Thanks, Bob, for joining me on kind of a, a bonus episode going a little bit off the path of stories from student athletes, but now from a guy who wrote a story, a whole book about an Oregon State student athlete. So thanks for joining me on the Beaver Tales podcast. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. Yeah. So let's just kind of start with your first connection and how you just got the idea of writing the story in the first place. How did you yeah. first meet Dick Fosbury and broach the topic with him of writing his book? Well, I had grown up in Corvallis. I was a 13-year-old kid um, when I first saw Dick jump and 14 when he won the gold medal. And I was a big, big fan, you know. We used to ride our bikes over to, to Parker Stadium, as it was, in Bellfield. And on Sundays, we'd actually jump in the same high jump pit that Dick Bosbury did. So I always grew up enamored by this guy. He was one of our heroes. And then as I became a, a journalist, um, uh, in 1988, I pitched a story to Sports Illustrated. With, I knew it was a 20-year anniversary of his gold medal, and uh, they said yes, and, and I wrote a piece on 
Fosbury and I'd gone, I went over to uh, Sun Valley uh, where he, or Ketchum, Idaho, where he lived at the time and uh, interviewed him and got to know him a little bit. And then, gosh, I blinked and 30 years had passed. And I said, some, someone said, Hey, do you realize it's a 50 year anniversary of, of Fosbury's gold medal? And I said, man, I, 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 this would be a good time for a book. So I contacted him and thinking that I might be fourth or fifth in line, but nobody else had, had the idea. So he, uh, he said, let's do it. And we did it. So that's awesome. Anyway. I'm guessing it seemed after you'd written the article for Sports Illustrated, and obviously that's a much shorter piece compared to the book that once you started writing the book, you realized, oh my gosh, there was so much of this story that it really deserved more than just one article. Exactly. Um, when I, I, th I thought I knew that Fosbury's story, but even the night that I called him and asked about the book, he said, well, there's a lot people don't know about my life. And I said, well, like what? And, and uh, he said, well, for example, that my brother, uh, when I was 14, my little brother who was 11 was killed in a hit and run when we were uh, riding our bikes together. And I go, oh my gosh. And, uh, um, and then uh, later he brought up the, uh, I think Kerry Eggers, uh, former barometer uh, yeah. sports editor yeah. and uh, Portland Tribune, Oregon and Portland Tribune, and my, uh, uh, my mentor, sort of, my, my, my uh, um, sports editor at the Sheldon Junior High newspaper. No way. Wow. I always wanted, I, my dream was to be Kerry Eggers. <laughs> anyway, he's, he's a friend, and, and it's great to see his, the success he's had. But at any rate, um, once I got into it, I, I found also this whole thing about the, the, the USOC promising all of these winners in LA that they would get to go to the Olympics and then reneging on that and saying, no, you have to prove yourself again at altitude at, at Lake Tahoe. Uh, so there was all this new information that as I got into it, I realized I didn't know the story at all. And most people didn't know the story at all. Uh, Dick, Dick knew the story, but very few uh, others did. Right. And I didn't either. And that was kind of how you started the book was the story of his brother and that tragic incident, something that affected him and his parents. Right. And all that. Um, yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to understand at the deepest level, how a guy who was jumping five foot four and is self admittedly, admittedly one of the worst high jumpers in the state of Oregon <laughs> could wind up five years later on the Olympic podium. And, and then a decade later had revolutionized the world. Yeah. when it came to high jumping and you know it, it was i think it was a more complex process than we imagine a lot of people think well you, you'll read things like well he was a uh, he was an engineering student so he figured out in his mind how to do this and he will tell you no that wasn't it at all it was like a, he would just say it was an accident it it was born of of just this sense that he needed to succeed and i argue in the book that why he needed to succeed was he had lost his brother. A year later, his parents divorced. He was, he was a kid looking to belong somewhere. And the place to belong wasn't football, where uh, Bill Inyard, yes. Oregon State star fullback to be, uh, shattered his helmet and broke a couple of his teeth. Basketball, where he just wasn't coordinating them. Track was the only place he had to excel, to, to feel like he belonged. And I argue that he all but willed himself into a new style that allowed him to jump higher to stay on that team. Because Medford High sports, as they are today, but particularly back then, 
very competitive. And if you're not good enough, they're going to find somebody else to jump. And he knew that. And so to me, I think desperation was one of the strong motivators in all of this, the desperation to belong. One of the things I really liked about your writing style in the book is winding his story intertwined with the cultural moment. And you'd kind of go outside of story a little bit, talk about what was going on in America at the moment. And it was kind of like, okay, what's Bob doing here? And then it was, oh, I see. He's really placing where Dick is in the broader scope of the baby bo- baby boomers slash right. what Medford culture was. And like you talked about, he wanted to belong amongst all the faces and athletes yeah. and people, which is kind yeah. of what my podcast is about is finding where do people's identity come from when they're no longer athletes or when they were athletes. So just to see how you place Dick Fosbury's story of belonging and validation was really compelling. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I think context is important. And um, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about the 60s just because it was cool or, or volatile. I'm talking about the 60s because they related to Dick Fosbury. And when, um, you know, th- here's a guy who's, who's on the brink of becoming an Olympic athlete, and he's not worried about making the team. He's worried about being drafted. Yeah. You know, things that, 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 you know, athletes today don't have to worry about. They have to worry about co- coronavirus. But, <laughs> um, and then the whole, um, you know, Medford as a racist community. I mean, there's just no way, no way to say it beyond that. It was a very racist community, and he grew up in that environment. And the fact that years later, after winning the gold medal, he was among the few white athletes who stood up in, in, for Fred Milton, the uh, uh, black uh, football player who had been kicked off the team for having just the slightest uh, goatee and mustache, um, that was, that was important stuff. So, so I had to tell those stories and because they related to Dick, but, uh, but the, your reaction has been the reaction from lots of readers. They like that sense that, you know, I remember, I remember living in the sixties. I was there, but, but I like that you put it in perspective and I understood how everything was sort of connected, but it was, and, and I also argue that in, in one ways, you know, the sixties were, were a time of experimentation uh, some of it not so good, but but experimentation of, of risk-taking, of imagination, of doing things a different way. And what was the Fosbury flop but exactly that? So yeah. I would argue that, that this might have been the only decade where this could happen. I mean, this wasn't going to happen in the 1940s. You know, it just wasn't. It wasn't going to happen in the 1950s. But in the 1960s, there was an openness to change, even though the coaches – were the last to really believe in the style. Bernie Wagner, the Oregon State coach himself, who, who gave Dick a partial scholarship, he tried to uh, wean him back to the Western role. He, he didn't believe in the Fosbury Fop. He believed in Dick Fosbury, but not his style. And then Fosbury convinced him otherwise. There's a couple things I want to come back to, but let's let's jump right into what you just mentioned. There's a lot of stories like that of of Dick Fosbury nearly having to change his technique and initially having to practice. You know, Bernie Wagner didn't give him the green light for a while right. to both practice and compete with his new technique. And the there's hybrid so many method, right? Exactly. Uh, there were so many stories where his athletic career could have derailed but it stayed afloat for one reason or another time after time from his high school career to, I mean, in 1968, he didn't even know that it was an Olympic year. That was a funny part. Exactly. Exactly. 
to his OSU career to what if he didn't qualify at the Olympic trials the first or second time. And so there were so many times, I'm guessing this, maybe this pattern jumped out at you or if he kind of had already internalized it of it nearly didn't happen so many times, but it ended up working out. Exactly. Um, in its initial stages, uh, other uh, high school coaches said it was illegal. Doctors said he was going to break his back. Coaches didn't believe in it. One of the, one of the coaches who didn't believe in it the most was Fred Spiegelberg, who was the yeah. Pope of Medford. He was the football coach, and he also happened to be the high jump coach. But he, did, he thought it was crazy. He thought it was stupid. He thought it was kicking, like kicking a field goal backwards with your, your, your foot. Um, but, Dick, again, what happened is the, the results finally proved everybody wrong, even in the case of Wagner. Um, once, you know, when Dick was a sophomore in high school, he'd lost his girlfriend, he was flunking out of school, he was in danger of getting drafted. He, he was as low as he, he could get. And then finally, in the spring of his sophomore year, he uncorks a 6'10", he breaks the school record at Fresno State, and Wagner finally becomes a believer. And, you know, in the next year, Dick's improving, what, six and a quarter inches, uh, but you're right. He was at so many points, he could have just said, forget this. And, but, but, you know, he stuck to it. And you've got to understand, think of this. He's a high school sophomore versus Fred Spiegelberg. I mean, it would be easy for him to say, yeah, maybe this isn't such a good idea. But Dick believed in it and he stuck with it and he had the last laugh. It's real funny. I mean, the Spiegelberg family is one of the most well-known and well-respected oh. families in, in Corvallis and Medford yes. or wherever they've gone. I, most liked. I called Scott Spiegelberg on, I think it was Friday, just about some random question. It wasn't anything super important. He picks up and says, hey, Josh, how are you? And I say, oh, do you got a minute, Scott? And he said, well, my daughter's about to get married in 30 minutes, but sure, I've got a moment. And I'm like, <laughs> no, go, go, go to your wet note. He, he, is, an awesome, he is an awesome individual and, and was a big help on this book and on a personal level has been a, uh, just an inspiration to me. Uh, he's, I, just, I, I, I know him uh, through some other people and through a fraternity, the SAEs that we're both connected with, and he's a great man. Yeah. And to see the then Fred Spiegelberg story of it, it, it was real funny to see Fred cast sort of, I won't say in the wrong because everybody was in the wrong when it came to Dick Fosbury's technique. So sure, it's not sure. reflecting poorly on him, but yeah. it was one, the only time I've ever heard, oh, if you look back on it, Fred, you know, he, he didn't know what was to come, nor did Dick even anyway. So right. it's not his fault, but it was just funny to see uh, even Fred Spiegelberg didn't see it from the beginning. You can understand why people laughed. You can understand why people thought the, the kid might break his back. Uh, you can understand why coaches thought it was illegal. Uh, but, as, but as I said, Dick persevered. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the Russians, when they first saw, even the guy that had been beaten by Dick, he just said, it's impossible. This can't be done. And yet he had just, he had just seen it be done. He had just lost to the guy. But still, people didn't want to believe it. But Mexico City changed everything. When, you know, you wonder if, you know, even if he had gotten a bronze medal, would it have revolutionized high jumping? Ultimately, I think so. Because other people would have caught on and they might have been the Dick Fosbury. It might not have been called the Fosbury flop. You know, Debbie Brill in, in Canada was experimenting with the same sort of jump that Dick did. Um, and it might have been the Brill bend for all we know. But Dick, again, 
there's something that legitimizes an effort when you win a gold medal. And, and so, like he said, um, I, my timing was good, <laughs> which is right. an understatement. Because let's, let's face it, he was a, a year and a half before the Olympics. He was nothing. And shortly after, he never did anything after the Olympics other than he did defend his Pac-8 uh, title in the spring of 69. And, then, and he won the NCAAs in, the, in spring of 69. But beyond that, you know, he tried indoor. No, it didn't really work because he was such an emotional jumper. He was a heart jumper and it had to mean something to him. And suddenly when he was just getting paid to do it for, you know, for indoor track, nah, it wasn't, it wasn't as much. So he, he was just in the right place at the right time. And really, Valerie yeah. Brumel, the two-time gold medalist, had uh, been injured in a cycling accident uh, in, I think, 67. And so he couldn't compete. Would have, it might have been different. Who knows? Had Brumel yeah. been able to jump? Dick might have gone, you know, 7-6 instead of 7-4 and a quarter. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? It's interesting to see what Dick Fosbury started and how others took it and ran. Because, yes, he did get the Olympic gold medal, but Dick Fosbury never set a world record. The first person to ever set a world record using the Fosbury flop technique was a guy I just had on the podcast, and John Radetich. He John was Radetich, the first one right. to do it. Exactly. Weirdly enough, in Pocatello, Idaho, with <laughs> Dick Fosbury in the stands. Yes. As yeah. I recall. He was a total non-believer in the flop. He came in here, you know, a year after Dick and, and just kind of laughed at him. And, and, and he said, you know, by the end of the year, I'm going to be the best high jumper here. And, and he wasn't. And, and he didn't really convert until his, about his senior year, I think, Bradichit started, you know, realizing maybe I should try this out. And, of course, <laughs> then he does set the first world record with it. Yeah. Uh, one thing you had mentioned earlier was – the uh, the protest for Fred Milton and uh, I mean I read this book right as the Black Lives Matter initiative was you know really coming full force back in May so it was interesting to read even though you wrote it a couple of years ago it was even more relevant or timely in a sense when I was reading it a couple months ago um, and one of the other stories I didn't even know uh, was Dick Fosbury in the '68 Olympics right after Tommy Smith and John Carlos had raised their fist on the right podium dick fosbury right. had also just briefly right as the national anthem was finishing raised his fist for yes. a moment and i i didn't yeah. know that um yeah it was it, just a brief it was a brief acknowledgement a brief a bit of support for them and then I, I you know then then you see the courage that he had he came back to medford and he was at some sort of a you know linebackers club luncheon or something and somebody asked him about smith and carlos and and he said that he supported what they did and and the jaws all around just fell open. What did you just say? Because in Medford, um, Carlos and Smith had shamed our country is what they had done. And I think that Dick, in competing with so many African-American uh, athletes and getting to know them and living with Willie Turner, a 200-meter guy at, at OSU, I think he started to do what not enough people do today, and that is to try to put themselves in the shoes of somebody who's different from them. And he started to look at life through them. And that's when the scales sort of fell off his eyes. And he said, I, I didn't realize at the time growing up in Medford, how, how I looked at the world only through my own eyes. And, and I never stopped to think about what, what would it be like to be black in Medford in, in 1963 or whatever. But that changed decidedly. And I, I remember when I interviewed Tommy Smith, um, uh, 
he said, he said, people, I, I said, you know, a lot of people thought you shamed America. And he said, you know, and why did you have to, why did you have to take the Olympic games and sort of mar the Olympic games with that protest? And he said, I had lived my whole life trying to tell people what it's like to be a black man in America. Um, I could win a race. I could win three races at San Jose State on Saturday and Sunday. I would get turned down for housing, even though my girlfriend would call the next day. My white girlfriend would call the next day and say, she, they'd say, oh, yeah, we have plenty of housing available. And he goes, so sometimes you come to a point where no one is listening. So you have to do something to get them to listen. And that's Kaepernick kneeling, or maybe that's a fist in the air, but you have to do something. And for the first time, I started to understand what it's like to be black in America and that it, it's I think sometimes as white people we think we know what they're experiencing and, mm -hmm. and you don't have it that bad and we're not putting ourselves in their shoes and looking at things through their perspective we're not the guy with a tail guy gate or tail light out who's gotten pulled you know pulled over nine times even though our white neighbor might have a tail light out and might never get pulled over we just make some assumptions we shouldn't so I learned a lot through the Fosbury story. And I thought, I thought that his post-Olympics stance on the Milne thing and his unwillingness to tag his whole life to athletics, but become more, I thought it was heroic. And I thought it was, a, I, thought, I think he teaches us a good lesson about keeping sports in perspective. I like that. And one of the lessons I learned was about how, how to get to that place of empathy and realizing not even realizing what it's like to be a black person in America, but at least realizing you don't know what it's like mm -hmm. is that that's the first thing is to say, <laughs> it's just to simply say, yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, is that you might think coming from Medford, he wouldn't have that experience and, and really he didn't. And it wasn't that he just randomly became more aware or just happened to become, oh, I, I have, you know, even without black friends or, or talking with other athletes, it wasn't that he didn't do that and suddenly realized it, it was that he just did later that he may didn't, maybe he didn't have that in Medford, but at Oregon State and in the Olympics and with Willie Turner and with John Carlos, with Tommy Smith, yeah. all these other athletes, it just may have happened later, but that really is what probably caused it. Right. And, when he, and I think that the thing was, he had personal relationships with, with people and he got to know people. And so he didn't have to just assume certain things, but he, he learned from them and he listened because he would be the first to tell you that when he, before the Olympics, his head was down, he was all about high jumping and, and the whole social consciousness stuff, the, the whole uh, uh, boycott thing. He didn't want anything to do with it. Really. He, I mean, he, he was, um, you know, he, he would admit that he was uh, singly focused on track and field and, and should have probably, you know, listen. He, he said that when they back, went back to New York to the uh, indoor meet that was uh, being boycotted, you know, he didn't even know what – he didn't even know what, what are they – why are they boycotting? What's the, what's the problem, you know, which is really kind of – you think about it, a lot of people sort of have that attitude today. Well, what's, what's the big beef, you know, the – you know. The Civil War is over. The, the slaves have been freed. What's everybody complaining about? But, you know, if you listen to people's stories, um, you understand that, that and a lot of the discrimination that was happening back then is much more insidious, but it's, it's still there. It's still there.
Right. Yeah. I think if I do get the chance to talk to him, that'd be one of the, one of the topics I'll touch on for sure. Um, there's so many different stories we could chat about through the book, but we'll, we'll leave most of them for people to go read it themselves. But a couple last things for you. Um, in, uh, in the end, actually, how many, just in terms of the, the process of writing the book, how many sessions did you have with Fosbury? How did those conversations go for yeah. the, the, learn, the research for writing the book? Well, The Wizard of Foz was a book that um, I think it took us, I think it was about a one-year process. And I had a lot, I had the foundational story, you know, I just had it, you know, it's online. I've read stuff. It's in books. I'd interviewed him before. Um, but I probably, I probably sent, I don't know, probably exchange a hundred emails over a year's time or something, but a lot of email back and forth, a lot of phone conversations. And then the key was ultimately I got him to meet me in South Lake Tahoe. And mm -hmm. um, we spent three days together down there and just uh, immerse ourselves in going over the information. We drove up to uh, 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 summit echo summit where they had put the track in the, El Dorado National Forest. I, to me, I still had, I had a photo in my, my bedroom in Corvallis in the early 60s was literally wall to wall with Sports Illustrated photos, one of which was of Jim Ryan running through the trees at, at Echo Summit. And I've always thought it was magical that this, this has never happened before or after, that you would plop down a track in the middle of a national forest and there were a hundred trees in the middle of the oval and you held an Olympic trial. I've always thought that was fascinating. But anyway, um, so one, when I got up there with Fosbury, we could actually find, taking old photographs, uh, we could actually find within probably five feet of the place where he started his approach for that amazing uh, third and final attempt uh, at 7-3 to, to qualify for the Olympic Games. And uh, to me, that was, between that and the Olympics, the Olympics got him the attention, but the gutsier event was, was Tahoe, was the trials, because he had wrongly, he, he had been cheated out of a spot on the team. He'd won in LA, which, and they'd been told that the winners get to go. So he was coming back, and he was down to his last jump at 7-3. And if he misses, he doesn't make the Olympics. And uh, he makes the jump. And to me, that was the gutsier effort and the more dramatic effort, you know. Right. The other jumper running off into the woods in tears. Fosbury saying, I didn't see him again for, you know, 10 years. And it was so much drama down there. And, and at 5,000 feet, amazing. So One of the other things that you kind of brought it up early of how Dick mentioned his brother and the story of him dying in stories that, I've written where it, it's about something that may be traumatic for them of maybe I know, oh, they had a parent who died or, or had some traumatic thing with their family is, you know, I, I want to bring that up in a story because I know that could be a, a compelling story. It could be an interesting narrative, but you know, I also not knowing, are they comfortable talking about this? Right. Should I ask about it? And there's right. a delicate balance. Now with Dick, he, it seemed like he offered that up. So it may have been a little easier, but how have you, broach that topic either with dick or with other stories you've written where how do you say i want to write about this really difficult thing in your life that may have been the worst thing that's ever happened to you but i i also don't want to make it hard for you make you relive right. something how have you gone about doing that sort of i thing? try to convince the person i'm writing about that vulnerability is a strength not a weakness and that 
to tell a whole story is not only healing for them, um, but it's, it's, to, it's to help a reader understand. I have a client who, uh, whose father was at Dachau and uh, in the concentration camp in World War II and then came home. He was kind of a hero in the war, but he came home and he was a horrible father and he was an abusive father. And I, I talked her into telling that side of the story too. She just wanted to talk about the hero father. And now that the book is out, she's, she's found it uh, amazingly healing that she was vulnerable, that she told the whole story. Because now she's got people coming out of the woodwork who said, you know, my World War II father was the same way. So she's got, she's helping people get through that now. Mm -hmm. So with Dick, like you said, he offered it up first. And then I told him, I said, I really think this is an important part of the story. And to his credit, I said, would you write what happened on that day that your brother died? I mean, I wrote most of the book. And, um, but I asked him to write, down what happened and he did minute by minute account of that which must have been emotionally excruciating but was probably therapeutic too because again he had this is the first time that he had really shared this story really gone deep with it and it couldn't have been easy um but i think you know my mom always used to tell me after she read the book she said well i think it was therapeutic for jake i think that probably helped him get through some things and, and you know maybe it did but uh, i just i i just try to convince the people that I think it's going to be better for the reader and it's going to be ready better, better for the writer. And it's going to be better for the source. Uh, mm. if, if we, if we come clean now, obviously there's some places people simply don't want to go. And if you, you know, if, if, if my client tells me that I'm not going there, but I'll, I'll, I'll push pretty hard for, <laughs> for vulnerability because my, my experience in 40 years of journalism is the more real you can be with a reader, the more they appreciate the story and the more the more they'll if you if you the more they'll believe your story i think mm. too right and much better stories to read for sure than the yeah, bland yeah. vanilla ones where now, it's gary not. gary smith was a sports illustrated uh, writer and if you've ever read any of his stuff he just goes so deep with athletes and and uh, too many of us i think we just sort of um we peel away the first layer of the onion but the real story is is deeper inside well, last thing for you, just in top in terms of the the book and some of the fun things about it. Since it's been a couple of years since it came out, uh, 2018 being 50 years after the the gold mm -hmm. medal that Fosbury won down in Mexico City. Um, and by the way, I'll, I'll put a link to the description. It's on you know, your website, bobwelch.net, and you can find the book there and all that. Um, but in the two years since it's come out what sort of feedback have you gotten people who have reached out to you who have read it and said, Oh my gosh, I didn't know this story or additional stories. People have told you of, well, did you know this about Fosbury or this yeah. interaction I had with them? What, what sort of things have you heard? I guess, I guess the, the good news is I didn't hear too much. Um, oh, did you know this about him? Or did you know that about him? There wasn't too much. The only, the only thing that I, I do regret that I didn't include, I understood that D Andros and Fred Milton had become fairly pretty good friends late in life. And I wish that I'd had that in my epilogue. Um, I think that the, probably the, two, the, the things I heard most were, um, wow, I had no idea that it was as deep and complicated a story as it was. Um, no idea about the USOC reneging. No, no idea about his brother. And that they, they loved the cultural feathering in of the cultural times, what was going on in the 60s and how it related to Dick. And so I think it was, it's, I think it's more than a sports book. I think it's a book about the times and I think it's a book about courage. And I think it's, 
a book about obviously thinking outside the box and, and the courage, of course, in his sticking to his guns, even when a lot of people said, this is never going to work. You're going to kill yourself. It's illegal. And sticking to his guns afterwards and st standing up for Fred Milton and for saying, going back to Oregon State after he'd flunked out, going back to OSU, giving a second chance, getting his degree and being a civil engineer, which is what he wanted to do instead of simply saying, well, I'm, I'm nothing but a high jumper. Dick saw himself in a, in a bigger sense. And, and I think that too many athletes, they, they don't, I'm just this, I'm just that. And they, they put all their eggs in that basket when their career's over, they don't know what to do. So Fosbury's had a great life. He's, you know, on Olympic committees, he's, he does camps for kids. He's really been a great ambassador for the United States and particularly for Oregon state and for Medford. It's, it's a great story. I'm, I'm super glad that, that you wrote the story. There were many moments of when I read it, realizing, gosh, I didn't know that part of it. I just thought, you know, Fosbury made this technique, but there was so much about his personality, his backstory, what he does uh, throughout his career. So you did a great job, and thanks for coming on the podcast to, to talk about it for a bit. Thanks, thanks Josh. Someday when you're on ESPN, I will uh, <laughs> say I knew that kid. Thanks for having <laughs> no, me on. Oh, my pleasure. Well, it really was a pleasure to have Bob Welch on. I hope you enjoyed hearing that story. Again, go check out the book. I mean, we covered a number of the stories from that book, but there was a lot we did not talk about that you'll still get from reading The Wizard of Fives. You can find that book online. I'll post a link to uh, Bob Welch's website in the description. And I really like what he kind of ended with about what athletes are set up for after life and what their identity is in. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about. Most of the episodes, if you check out the other ones, are all with Oregon State athletes to talk about what they transition to after sports and their highlights at Oregon State and who they are as people both within and outside of their competition on the field, on the court, wherever they may be. Thanks again to Bob Welch for joining me on this bonus episode of the Beaver Tales podcast. Some really fun episodes coming up, so stay tuned for those. Also, just a little update just off the top of my head. I'm still working on the Beaver Tales documentary series. Season one is about the Oregon State Beavers baseball team. Now, I've changed the storyboard a little bit where the plan was to narrate through the postseason. That's still the plan, but there's going to be a couple episodes at the beginning that aren't even specifically narrating through and retelling specific games, but just more broadly about the Oregon State team. And not broadly in terms of general vague storylines, but more specific things that weren't related to a particular game, but are still very tangible. For example, what are some specific stories about how players were impacted by Pat Casey? And putting multiple stories together, hearing directly from those players, clips spaced throughout the entire episode, you get the idea, hopefully. And if you don't, well, just listen to it when it comes out. You can learn more at the website that I'll post in this description. That whole documentary series, which will really bring you behind the scenes of that 2018 championship squad for Oregon State Baseball, It'll be a real fun project. I've spent a lot of time every week working on this, and hopefully it'll come out well near the end of this year. So look forward to that and future episodes of this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I've been your host, Josh Warden.